Well, last week, we looked at, uh, we were in Proverbs chapter 17, that's where we've been, and we looked at six really good practical principles uh, that deal with life in general. Proverbs 17 has been a, a, a really a good a chapter uh, giving real life principles for, for real life issues. And you know, the book of Proverbs, when you first started studying it, we looked at the verse that talked about that uh, uh, the book of Proverbs was for the issues of life. The things that we come up with, the things that we have to face, the things that we deal with. And uh, we have been coming through it and just really laying the principles out. And I've been trying to show you how not only the book goes together in a historical fashion, but how it prophetically all deals with uh, the future and the nation of Israel within the tribulation. But then, most importantly, uh, where it is in your life and my life. I mean, history is important. Prophecy is important. But what really gets you through every day's life trials and the issues you have to face is just understanding how to apply the principles in the Word of God. And there's no greater book than the book of Proverbs. So you remember last week, just to kind of jog your memory and then to continue on with today, we talked about the, the great verse there that talked about that a bear robbed of her whelps. You were better off to deal with a grizzly bear who was really upset because you're messing with her kids than to hang out with a fool in his folly. That's a great contrasting verse. Then we talked about the aspect of somebody, uh, you know, rewarding evil for good. Somebody who in the ministry does what's right and lays out the word of God and does everything, but then, you know, uh, he gets rewarded evil. People turn on them. And we talked about that. I showed you how that big issues in our life, they always start with small ones. I don't care what megaton problem you have or you're going through in your life right now. And they can get catastrophic in their volume. It all started with one little problem, one little thing that wasn't dealt with and taken care of. And in time, it brings it uh, to where it is now today. We talked about justifying the wicked uh, and condemning the just. Uh, Exactly what we find today in the world and everything that's going on. And we found out how that uh, the whole concept is just a uh, concept of just laying out and, and breaking down uh, the principles that, that uh, the world that we live in spends all day long justifying everything that's wicked. And anything that's good anymore, it simply condemns. We talked about the aspect of somebody trying to pay for learning the Word of God. Somebody trying to give somebody money or, or go to a school someplace where you, you, you pay to learn the Word of God. Hey, when it comes to medical school, law school, engineering school, flight school, whatever. There you have every right to go in there and pay a tuition to learn that. But when it comes to the Bible, you cannot put a price tag on, nor should you, on teaching somebody the Word of God. What God gave to us freely, we have to give to others freely. And then we talked about probably one of the greatest principles in all the Bible on friendship. Understanding true friendship. Understanding how friendship is defined in the Word of God and how important that it is in everything that uh, we deal with. Six of the best everyday life's issues that, will, that you're ever going to find. And today, we're going to move on into our next section of verses, and we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 17. We'll start in verse 18, and we'll come down uh, to around verse 22, and we'll look at it from there. And I want to give you five or six more uh, really good principles today to, to add to what you, what you already have. And uh, again, we just thank you for being here. I hope that you get a blessing out of it. 
And uh, let's go uh, to the Word of God today and, uh, and get into the Bible. A.J., would you stand up and ask God blessing on the offering, or not, on the message this morning? Amen. Now, verse 18 starts out, it says this. A man void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety in the presence of his friend. Now, we're going to look at these again, one at a time, and we're going to glean out of it the principles that we can really uh, use and see and understand. And uh, here we have a man or a woman who, without understanding, they really get themselves into a mess. And I'll tell you what. If there's anything in the ministry when it comes to people in churches that you deal with all the time, it is something just along these lines, just like this. The last couple of weeks, we have been talking about strife. We've been talking about contention, problems festering and, and, and getting into a person's life. When this principle gets violated and you see uh, that you will see the contention come in between two people, failure to grasp this concept and this principle is always going to lead to a problem and always going to lead to an issue. And, uh, you know, you have to come to the reality at some point in your life. And, you know, I know it's, it, we think because a person is saved or a person is a Christian that that means that you can trust them in everything that happens. And, of course, we know that that's simply not true. Unfortunately, and, and I wish it was true, but you know as well as I do, in the world that we live in, not all Christians are always really good Christians. And yet Christians seem to forget that even though that we are saved and we are Christian, we all still have to deal with our old sin nature. And we all still have to deal with the petty things in our own world, and our own life. And you're going to have to deal with people who are truly saved on their way to heaven. But they will not follow the principles when it doesn't benefit them. And you're just going to have to understand that. So they'll, they'll put themselves, uh, a Christian will put themselves into an agreement with somebody. Uh, some other Christian. And then when it, it, it all falls apart, it doesn't work out. When contention comes in or strife begins because of the problem. Then they have an issue. And if you deal with people as a pastor, you deal with this all the time. Uh, chapter 22 of the book of Proverbs, verse 26, is a little um, verse that makes it a, even a little bit clearer. It says, And be not one of them that strike hands, or of them that are surety for death. Now, strike hands simply means shake hands, or you seal the deal, you know, and say, okay, I'm going to do this for you or do this with you. In other words, what they're saying here, if... A person that doesn't have any wisdom and understanding will get themselves into a situation where they will be responsible for somebody else's debt. Sometimes it's, you know, you feel sorry for somebody who's trying to get a car uh, and uh, you want to try to uh, help that person. And so you think that, uh, well, the Christian thing to do is they don't have any good credit. They're not going to be able to get a car. They really want to try to do what's right. You know what? I I'll go ahead and co-sign on the loan so they can get the car. And it doesn't work out sometimes. Sometimes it does. Most of the time, it, it, it just does not. 
And uh, you've got to always uh, uh, think of that. I, 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 the three of the most frequent that I have to deal with over the years is two people will get an apartment together. And they'll split the rent. And then they'll split the utilities. And then what happens is that somebody's late on the utilities or what happens is you didn't forget to put the food in. You get your food, you get your food, and then they start eating your food and they don't eat their food. And suddenly you don't have any food. And you know where it goes from there. And you know what? With me, if you moved in with me, I wouldn't care if you didn't pay the gas. I wouldn't care if you didn't pay the phone. I wouldn't care if you didn't pay the water bill. You touch my food, I'll kill you. <laughs> Years ago, and some of you remember this. Years ago, when we were sending teams over to Europe and around the world teaching discipleship, the same lessons you did, we put them through a very strict, stringent course. We wanted to simulate to them being in the harshest situation that you could be in. We called it Hell Weekend. And what we did was, I had back then a number of guys, like I do here, that were uh, in the military and were really some hardcore guys. We put together a weekend that was unbelievable. We kept them up all night. We marched them 15 miles in. I mean, you may remember at some point years ago going down one of the streets out here in a long list of line of 200 people uh, marching in single file. We would march them in, keep them up all night long. We would put them under. I tried to simulate all the pressures that you would be under in a culture that, uh, that uh, you're going to have to work in. They all had teams. And I, in many times, one time we did it in the dead of winter, it was freezing out. They had to make their own shelters, build their own fire. They had to do their own food. They had, it was incredible. And I would always be thinking of some of the most God-awfulest things to put them into to really make it. And the greatest thing I ever did, as I told them, I told them, I said, here's what we're going to do. The first meal, you can bring whatever you want. Bring whatever you want to eat, and we'll eat it alongside the road. And I said, after that, you better make it what you want. Well, you know how it is. Guys like you and me and Zach and you stopped off at Zarda's and got four slabs of ribs. <laughs> the girls brought peanut butter and jelly. One girl brought four cans of sardines. That was her going to be meal. She wanted to prepare herself. So I marched them 10 miles. And then I got into a field someplace, and I said, everybody circle up. They all circled up, and I said, okay, we're going to eat. I said, I want two lines right down here, line over here, line over here. We're talking about 100 people, maybe more than that. And I said, all right, get out your food and hold it up. I want to see who is really prepared tonight for this. And boy, some of those guys, they were holding up ribs. Some were holding up those Chickens you get from the high V where they bake them in the thing, you know, the rotisserie style chickens. And, they, and people had sandwiches. They had everything that they had. And as always, you had the people who were really into it. And they brought, they brought freeze-dried stuff, you know. I mean, they brought peanut butter, crackers, this and that. And everybody was standing there. And I said, all right, get your food out. They got all their food out. And I said, Okay. Trade your food with a person across from you. <laughs> Nothing demoralizes the spirit of a person more than taking their food. When they have thought about it all week long, this is what they're going to do. 
they have thought in their minds, at least I'm going to get one good meal. <laughs> you know life is that way? Amen. Life is the fact that you think you're going to get one really good thing out of it, and then somebody takes it from you and gives you a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I learned a great lesson that don't mess with a man's food. We put ourselves into situations. We think it's going to be a good situation. And it doesn't turn out that way. Be sure of your friendship. I've seen them get apartments together. I've seen them, a guy buy a car, and as I said, cosign. I've seen people borrow money off of people. And, you know, and I mean, when you're in a need for money, hey, I mean, yeah, you, you, you know, who doesn't want to help people? Now, let me just say this. There's an exception to what I'm preaching today, and that would be what we talked about last week. When you have a friend that is like the friend that sticketh closer than a brother, a friend that is born for adversity, your stuff is their stuff. You don't have your money and then their money. You have, we're in this together. But that's very few people. In most cases, it doesn't work that way, does it? You want to help somebody? And I've watched some of you do it. You want to help? I've done it. You want to help somebody? So you, you do this for them, you do that for them. And the Bible says, be sure of your friendship because there's a really good chance that you're going to be left responsible for the debt. Three incredible things within a, a mind of a Christian that, that, uh, uh, that doesn't have God's mind and operate the way they should. A man void of understanding. And I've seen this all the time. Most Christians think, because they're going into a deal with another Christian, that that person's just going to do what's right. I remember years ago, when I was at another church, somebody came in with four big boxes of Christian phone books. They had put together a phone book that only had Christian businesses in it. And their whole concept was, we only do business with other Christians. And they brought in Box, you, probably five, six hundred of them. Laid them on the dock there, and he said, we'd like to give you to these churches. I said, what are they? And he said, they're Christian phone books. I said, they only have Christian businesses in them because we want to really support our Christian community. I said, I don't want them. They, they, they didn't understand. He says, no, you know, you know this is, these are phone books that have Christians in it that Christians ought to do business with other Christians. I said, I understand what they are. I don't want them. He says, well, I don't understand why. I said, well, first of all, how are you ever going to evangelize the world if you just do business with other Christians? Now, that was the spiritual side. Now, here comes the real why I didn't want them. I said, and the second reason is the biggest hosens I ever got in my life were from other Christians. <laughs> you think because a guy has a Christian business that you're going to get treated fairly? I guarantee you it's not going to happen. It should, but it isn't. Many times. Then you have this one. You have a Christian who, who thinks that it doesn't, if they don't honor the agreement, that you ought to understand because you're both Christians. <laughs> and you just, they, I'm, they get the mindset, well, you know what? What are you upset about? We're Christians. I had every intention to paying it back. I just can't. So, God will take care of it. But that phrase gets used and wore out more than anything else on all the planet. You know what? 
I've had people make every stupid decision on the, on the planet, and then they justify it by when they did it is the fact, well, well, God will come through and God promised he'll take care of it. God is not going to bless your stupidity. He gave you a Bible full of principles that tells you exactly how to operate. Then I get this one, lack of memory. Well, I don't remember we said that. No, 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 no. That's not what you said. No, no, no. That's not, that's not how it went down. Hey, I've even seen this. I had a guy one time who was pretty well off. And he helped a, a couple who, who really needed, needed some money. And, uh, and they were going through a tough time. And they had some money coming in. And they said, look, we'll pay you back as soon as, as we get our money. But we're really hurting right now. Hey, he was a nice guy. And he said, no problem. And he gave them the money. They never paid him. When I, I was talking to him about something, about this particular uh, uh, couple, and he says, yeah, he says, uh, and he told me the story. And he said, do you know what, Bob, you know what the reasoning was that why they didn't pay me back? When they got their money after I gave them the money, their reasoning was, these are Christians now, their reasoning was, oh, he's got a lot of money. We don't. So it's okay if we hose him because he, he, he won't even feel it. Well, and that may be true. I mean, if I got a million dollars and you need a $10,000 and you say, I'll pay it back to you Tuesday. And I say, okay, that's the agreement. I'll give it to you. And then you get your money back and you simply say, well, he's got a lot of money. is isn't about how much money I have or don't have. It's about the honesty of the principle involved. But that's missing today. And this is why the verse is so important. And this is why people have issues and have problems. Now, the answer to this is simply. And I don't know why this is so hard. Document everything that you do. Document everything you do. Make sure the agreement is laid out so down the line, if something goes south or sideways, it's right there. I mean, you know, have some form of clarity that later somebody can't come back and say, well, that's not what we said. Or I didn't understand it that way. Or I think you're really being unreasonable about it. You know, the Bible, the Bible in its simplest form, you know what it is? It's a contract between you and God. It's God writing a book that tells you exactly what he's going to do for you and what he expects from you. And I find God's people all the time have a problem with that contract. I mean, what part of that don't you understand when the Bible says this and you want to do something else? And when I got saved, I agreed to that contract. And you'll find a person that will always honor whatever agreement they have will be somebody who honors the agreement that they made with God. Follow the same. It's the same thing. Follow the same principles. And, I, and I, it's just the way that it works. The Bible in its simplest form is just simply that. The guy that owns all of this building here, his name is Larry. Larry's a great guy. He's a great friend of this church. He's got all kinds of people that are in renting all kinds of places from here in this own building. We, you can go up there. You've got a massage therapist down here. You've got an eBay place here. There's a fly fishing store down here. There's a, everybody. There's a catering service upstairs. We're downstairs. You know. And Larry rents places out. He never signs a contract. He's one of those old school guys that his word is his bond. And he just simply does what he says he's going to do. It's incredible. You don't find that 
today. And, you know, and I always worry about him because I don't ever worry about Larry, but I worry about the people that he deals with. Because it's out there today that God's people just think that, you know, that the rules don't apply to them. And when you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, hey, we don't have to run it down in writing because, oh, that would violate something that we're Christians. Our word ought to be our bond. You know, there was a day when you, years ago, probably in the 1800s, that when you went into a bank and a uh, guy says, uh, I'd like to get, uh, you know, $5,000. I want to I build my addition onto my house or my barn or whatever. And the guy says, uh, what kind of collateral do you have? And he'd say, well, I- I'm a member of the Methodist church. He got the money. Or he would say, I'm a member of the Baptist church. Well, he got the money. Try that today. <laughs> See, it meant something back there because your faith and your church was associated with the bond of your word. But it's all gone today. Not there anymore. Look at verse 19, the next verse. Here's a good one. He loveth transgression that loveth strife. And he that exalteth his gate seeketh destruction. Now, the verse is a goldmine, especially if you're going to ever work with people. And there's two great things here I want you to see quickly. Number one, it says in the verse, you cannot separate transgression from strife. The two go together. They'll always go together. And a wrong will always cause strife, a wrong or a transgression. And in life, if a man loves something, in this case transgression, it will always mean that he also loves the things that go along with what he loves. And in this case, it'll be strife. You can't separate the two. This is the great principle in understanding people and their issues, why sometimes they just can't break off and let something go and, and break free. One of my favorite verses is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, and it says, If any man love God, the same is known of him. And that's a great verse. If you really love God, if you really love God, I'm not talking about the verbal commitment that people have. If you really love God in your life, it shows And it shows because true love will always identify itself with the object in question. In this case, God. In the case of our verse, it will be transgression. Whatever you truly love in your life, whatever goes along with that, whether it's good or bad, will but you also love. True love will always identify itself with the object in question. But will also identify itself with all things that go uh, with God. You You can't just say, I love God. For instance, if a man really loves God, that he's really going to love his word. You can't say I love God but not love his word. Uh, these guys today, they drive me crazy. You'll stand in a pulpit and you, you would talk to them and say, oh yes, I love God, but I don't believe that you have a real Bible that you can trust, that you can have and read. How about if we, how about if we just reverse that? I love the Bible, but I don't believe there's a God. You're saying the same thing when you say, well, I believe in God and I love God, but I don't believe I can have a Bible. They're one and the same. And you can't have one without the other. If a man loves the Bible, he's going to love truth. You can't say, I love the Bible, but I'm going to do whatever I want to do here. And it really isn't relevant because it doesn't fit what I want to do. If you love the Bible, then you're going to love truth. If a man in the world loves a rich lifestyle then he's going to also love all that comes with that. 
He's going to love his possessions. He's going to love his big house. He's going to love his fast cars, his fast women. As he gets older, his slow cars and his slower women. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to love all the things that comes along with that. He's going to love his status. He's going to love his position. If a man really loves somebody, then he's going to love everything about them, all their quirks. He isn't going to sit there and pick apart, well, I like this about you, but that. If you really truly love somebody, then you love everything about them. You'll take the quirks along with the unquirks. You cannot separate yourself from the things that go along with the things that you claim to love. This is the basis for unconditional love. When God first looked at me, he loved me. He loved me through Christ. But when he first saw me, I was the most unlovable thing on the planet. But when he saw me in Christ, what Christ was going to do for me on the cross, he loved me unconditionally, and he accepted me the day I got saved with still all the imperfections that I had. He took everything I had and loved me. The Bible says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. And then it also reverse it. If any man doesn't love God, the same is known to him. Because true love, no matter what it may be, true love will always identify itself with the object. And the verse says, he that love a transgression, love strife. You cannot love the things of the world and not love everything that goes along with it. You cannot love the things of God without loving everything that goes with it. Now, Christianity today tries to do that. But that isn't true biblical love. And he that love a transgression will also love strife. One of the greatest absolute laws of human nature. Then look at the last part of verse, verse 19. He that exalteth his gate seeketh destruction. Now this is a really good principle that shows how God ties really the stories in the Bible and connects them to the principles in the Bible. I told you many, many times. You don't have a lot, of, once you get past the book of Acts, you don't have a lot of stories in the Bible. Now all you have is hardline principles. In the book of Proverbs, you don't have a lot of stories. In the book of Psalms, you don't have a lot of stories. You have hardline principles. And I've told you many, many times that all the stories in the Bible, Abraham and Lot, Cain and Abel, Elijah, wherever you want to go, all of those stories will illustrate New Testament biblical truth. And the key to understanding how to deal with issues in people's lives is to see the story, line it up with the New Testament principles, put the two together, and then have the ability to help somebody with wherever they're at. That's the key. That's the key. And that's exactly uh, this story here, this verse here, is exactly the same way. The Old Testament, uh, when it talks about the gate here, uh, that will be the Old Testament entry to the city. It was the place where all the elders met. It was a place where all the action took place. It was a place where they stood and had their meetings and talked about civic events and what they were going to do. It's where they watched who came into the city and who left the city. And it was a very important position. And the Bible example of this being used by somebody that gets destroyed would be what I call the Absalom syndrome in 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 15. Absalom was David's son. He wanted to overthrow his father's kingdom. He wanted to bring down the kingdom of David. He wanted the kingdom for himself. So he goes to the gate where everybody is coming into the city. He goes to the gate 
And he positions himself there as people come in and people would come up and talk to the elders about their issues and about their problems. It was the central place. That's why the word gate here is used in Proverbs. And he would stand down there and she would see somebody come up that would maybe upset about something that wasn't going the way he wanted to go. And he, he would listen and put an ear to it. And they would go on and they'd say, I'm not happy with this. Or I'm not happy with that. I'm not happy the way this is being done. And he'd sit there with that sympathetic ear and he'd just listen. And then he'd look down at them and he'd say, oh, you know what? If I were made king of Israel, I'd right all your wrongs. <clears throat> if I was in the position, I hear it. I feel your pain. If I was the king, I would, I would, I would fix all of those things. And the Bible says that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He did it by exalting himself at the gate. He did it by taking the position that he had and exalting it to, in time, destroy his own father's kingdom. And it's simply people who will love the wrong things. They will always do the wrong things, and they'll exalt themselves at the expense of somebody else. That's what he did. They'll use transgression and strife to exalt themselves. If you ever want to see it, just look at the political campaign that's going on right now for president. It isn't about what you're struggling with. It isn't about maybe you being out of work or the economy or war or this. You know what it's about? It's about somebody finding dirt on somebody else and then using it to exalt themselves that you think they're better than this person. And everybody does it. And you and I, as the common ordinary people, we just get lost in the shuffle. And that's exactly what this verse is talking about. We used the transgression and strife to exalt ourselves. Look at this person. Look what they did. Look how bad they are. I'm not like that. And if you elect me as president, that's how it goes. It's always been that way. The gate will be or represent somebody's power platform, somebody's position. A recognized position as a leader or an elder in this case, from which Absalom elevates himself to try to destroy his old father's kingdom. And the verse says there, he, he exalteth his gate, seeketh destruction. And in 2 Samuel 18, 10, he gets killed. He gets destroyed. Absalom does. It's an incredible concept. Look at verse 20. He that hath a froward heart findeth no good, and he that hath a perverse tongue falleth into mischief. Now, in the context that what we're looking at, that would fit right in 2 Samuel uh, 14 and 15 with Absalom. This is exactly what happened. But it, it, it fits in anything that we're into. Now, we know from uh, when we were back in Proverbs 17 and 16 uh, that uh, the froward heart, we defined it back there as somebody not willing to yield or comply with God's principles or his word. The good here that he is seeking will be the blessings of God in his life which he's trying to get without having a real relationship with God. In the Bible, wherever you find good or goodness, it'll always be a representation of something from God. In the New Testament, it'll be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's goodness. When we say my goodness, we're talking about my goodness is Jesus Christ. When we're talking about goodness gracious, we're basically saying Jesus Christ is full of grace and he's gracious. That's where these things come from. And seek as you will without a working biblical relationship 
with the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be no good found in your search through life. From the Bible standpoint, anyhow. And here again, this is where Christians completely off track. You want to remember, you don't define good. Your definition of good has to be God's standard of good. You don't define good in your life by your standard. Many of us try to do that. You define what's good in your life by understanding God's standards. There's been many a young gal that found a guy and thought he was the greatest thing in the world and then three years into the marriage found out he wasn't. You know why? She used the wrong standard to measure his good. There's been many a guy who married a gal that six months or a year or two years into the relationship, they realized that they had made a bad choice. You know why? Because they used their own standard to say that person is good versus God's standard. Good in our our eyes will not always be necessarily good in, in, in God's eyes. A lot of things we think are good are, in fact, terrible things in God's sight. God's standard will always be the difference that you want to use. Look at the last part of the verse. And he that hath a perverse tongue falleth into mischief. Now, that's, that's a good concept. The reason he'll never get anything good in life, the person in verse 20, the reason he'll never get anything good in life will be because of his own big mouth. He'll never shut up. They have no control over what they say. Their heart is against God and His Word. So out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12, 34. And it just continually makes a mess out of things. And again, you have to be able to look at life around you and exercise the biblical principles that you're learning to see Him work. I hope you don't think that I just lay this stuff out to you on Sunday morning so you can just, you know, take it and put it in your Bible or put it in your notebook. You ought to be using him looking around you and everything that you see going on in the world today. You want to exercise the principles that you're getting by looking at real life scenarios that illustrate what I'm giving you. And that verse says, he that hath a perverse tongue falleth into mischief. And I told you that a guy, uh, when, he, when he doesn't have good in his life and God in his life, the thing that's going to keep him from ever getting anywhere is his own mouth. And it just continually makes a mess out of things. And I'll tell you right now, I mean, I mean, you see all kinds of examples, but in the midst of where we're at, and I go back to the political world, man, just look at Donald Trump. I don't know if he'll make a good president or not. I don't really care. But I want to tell you something. There's somebody that every time he opens his mouth, he digs his hole a little deeper. Uh, every time he says something, he cannot speak without going into a defense mode of, of, against everything and everybody about him. And that's, that, that will always get you in trouble. The world is this and the world is that and there's all many issues out there and he's fighting over some judge saying he's racist because he's Mexican and, and this and that and he's, he's majoring on the minors and he just cannot keep his mouth shut. He gets drawn into everything he does and there's people like that all the time, man. All the time. And it just continually makes a mess out of things. Remember uh, chapter 16, verse 23, when we came through that a couple of months ago, that great verse, the heart of the wise teaches his mouth and addeth learning to his lips. What you do when you get into the Bible, you learn when to speak and when not to speak. You learn what is credible to talk about now and when you should not talk about it. You know when you should be on the offensive or on the defensive. You learn when you ought to just never say nothing. 
You learn to pick and choose your battles of what you're going to get into and verbally. The Bible says, the Bible talks about, uh, you know, that answer not a fool in his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Then it turns right around to the next verse and says, answer a fool in his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Hey, there's time to answer a fool in his folly. And there's time to shut your mouth and not answer a fool in his folly. And the word of God gives you the insight when to and when not to. You add learning to your lips. You teach your mouth what to speak. When you get into a situation with somebody that's struggling through life or a marriage situation that you're dealing with, you got to know what you're talking about. You can't just give them your homespun theology of what you think is going to work. You've got to be able to look at the scenario, look at the circumstances, look at the situation, look at the people, and then exactly know because you have taught your lips and your mouth what to say to be able to give them what they need to get. That's the key. Not so with a fool that has no wisdom or understanding. The biggest issues uh, will be uh, what he says and not knowing when to keep his mouth shut. Where you and I, with understanding and wisdom, get to the point that we learn uh, to speak and talk intelligently, a fool never does. He's stuck on himself. He's stuck on trying to whatever his agenda is. And that's all he can focus on. A child of God with wisdom and understanding, you back up and you see the whole picture before you say anything. And I want to tell you something. The more you get into the Bible, the more you learn those principles, the quicker you can assess a situation. Where some of you right now may get into a situation with somebody and, and you have to, you know, drive home that night and think about it and get into your Bible a little bit and, and call this guy or call me or call somebody else and lay it out. And it may take you a day or a, a half a day to figure it out and come back and see it. When you really get the Bible down and you really understand the principle and that book becomes what it is in your life that it needs to be, whenever situation you come in, it's an instant focus. You know exactly what you got and exactly what you're dealing with and where to go. That's having the wisdom and understanding of God in dealing in people's lives and people's problems. But the fool, he just keeps opening his mouth and keeps falling into mischief by what he says. And the situation just continually gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Look at verse 21. He that begotteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow. And the father of a fool hath no joy. Now, in the context here, historically, we know that Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, and we know that the fool in Solomon's life would be his own son, Rehoboam. You'll find him in 1 Kings chapter 12 and other various places. Rehoboam is a great disappointment to his father. Rehoboam is one of the worst kings that Israel ever has. Rehoboam is a fool who sets the first step in progress to destroy the nation of Israel. And that first step is simply he splits the kingdom. And when he splits the kingdom, Jeroboam, one of his generals, takes over the southern tribes, and it's a mess. And the devil begins to destroy the nation of Israel once he splits them in two. Because the key to our success as a Christian, as our success as the church, or Israel's success as a nation in the Old Testament was one word, unity. And when you let something get between you, when you let something get in between you, it'll separate you, you're in trouble. And it'll come to the point that it's the beginning of where you're going to go 
away from God. But inspirationally, even though it's Rehoboam in the story here, inspirationally, it would be any father who raises up a child who is a fool uh, in the Bible sense. Now, keep in mind, I'm talking about Bible definitions here. Some fathers have been proud of their sons from a worldly standpoint or a fatherly standpoint. From a Bible standpoint, that son was the biggest fool you ever saw in your life. So it isn't about your own definition of the thing. Psalms 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. We take that to mean that a man or a woman has to be an agnostic or an atheist. That's not necessarily true. Anybody who claims to be saved and then does the opposite of what the Bible says uh, in the Bible is treated like an unsaved man, whether they're saved or whether they're not. You're not a Christian because you say you are. I mean, you may be a Christian, but you don't prove your Christianity by what you say. You prove your Christianity by what you do. Over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where it talks about divorce and remarriage and all of the things that go along with that. The Bible talks about a man who has an unsaved wife. Then it turns it around and talks about a wife who has an unsaved husband. And it talks about in that passage how that a wife or a husband that's a saved person should do everything that they can to try to, to, try to get that person saved. You don't leave them. We talked about this a couple of Thursday nights ago. You don't leave them. You don't abandon them because you say that, uh, well, they're unsaved and I'm saved now, so that's not right. We talked about that, how God honors the marriage for the saved person's part. But the Bible also says this. It tells the believer that in certain scenarios where you have an unsaved spouse, if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. It simply says if the unbeliever in the marriage says, I don't want any part of this anymore, and I'm not going to do what's right, and I don't, I don't want to be here anymore, then, uh, then the Bible says that you let him depart, and it also says that you're not under bondage anymore in that relationship because they decided to leave. It's called desertion in the Bible. Hey, I have been in marital struggles where I know both people are saved, and I'll use this verse as a great tool to get my point across. I've had them sit there where uh, the husband and the wife and the wife wants to do what's right and the guy doesn't. And I've had them vice versa where the wife doesn't want to do what's right and the guy does. But I, I've had them there where in one particular case I can remember he had a gal here who really wanted to do what's right and the guy was really an idiot. He didn't want to do what was right. And both as saved as I am, as far as I could tell in my own mind, I believe they were. She looks at me and she says, well, she, she says, honey, I really want to work it out. He says, you know what? I don't want to work it out. He says, I, I just don't want to a part of this anymore. And he says, I want out of this. She looks at me and she says, well, pastor, Bob, wh what do I do now? And I said, well, hon, I said, I feel tar sorry for you and terrible that you're going to probably bust up. But here's what I can give you out of the Bible. The Bible says in this given situation, if the pointing to the guy, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. You're not under bondage anymore. That's the best advice I can give you. The guy said, whoa, 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 whoa. He says, I'm a believer. I looked at him and I said, then if you're a believer, do what's right. Don't tell me you're a believer. Don't get upset that I just said, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. You raise your hand and say, I am a believer. You're not a believer because you say you're a believer. You're a believer because you're going to do what the Bible says. Now, if you are a believer, then do what's right Understand this marriage and do what you need to do. And if you don't, you want to leave? Duh, honey. <laughs> honey, the unbelieving depart, let them depart. A brother and sister is not under bondage anymore. 
My point is, you're not a Christian, even though you may be, because you say you are. Christians do what the Word of God says. It's just that simple. And the guy was saved as as you are. I, I believe he was, but I made my point. Saved people follow what the Bible says. And we get the idea that, you know, the fool has studied his heart that there is no God. So therefore, uh, you know, that's only for agnostics and atheists. Uh Uh-uh. I've seen many of God's people who live their lives the same way. Luke chapter 6, verse 46 says, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, not do the things which I say? And of course, that's what you find all the time. A fool. And then the last part of the verse, and the father of a fool hath no joy. Now, there's some great examples of this in the Bible. I think of, I think of Adam and his boy Cain. How disappointed and how the joy must have left when he found out that his one boy killed his younger boy. We talked about David and Absalom. I know David was tore up over Absalom. I don't care what Absalom tried to do to him. David loved him. And David wept and, and was grieved when Absalom got killed. One time, uh, uh, there was a great battle, and, and uh, uh, Absalom had been killed, and, and the guy came back and, and, uh, and told David about the battle. David didn't care one thing about the plans of the battle, who won or who lost. You know what he said? He says, what about Absalom? What about the boy? He wanted to know about him. He loved him. Great disappointment. We talked Thursday night about, about uh, uh, Eli and his sons. What a great disappointment that must have been. We talked about also Samuel and his sons. What a great disappointment that must have been. I I look at I look at Lot and his kids. I mean, wow. I mean, even that Lot even care, but his kids were an absolute mess. Fathers, fathers like to be proud and take joy in what their kids do. And particularly here, he's talking about a son. And you know, I've watched them, I've watched them encourage their kids to, to play football, encourage their kids to, uh, to, uh, to, to play baseball and all of those things. And all those things are fine. They really are. But let me tell you something. If I had a choice between my boy or my daughter being an athletic star and getting a, getting a paid scholarship to some college someplace versus them standing up and laying out the Word of God and the devotion and laying that thing out and putting out the Word of God, I take the Word of God every time. Amen. I just certainly would. Certainly would. And uh, most of the time, uh, uh, mom, dads, and get, they, they, got their, they got their things, in, their, their priorities in the wrong place. I mean, what good is it if your kid gets a scholarship to the best college in the world because they're a great baseball player or football player and he loses his faith in God and does nothing for God the rest of his life? What's the point? What's the point? But you know what? Fathers are proud of that. They're proud of that. And they don't understand that every time you take your child and you teach them that it's more important to do this than to be in God's house, that, that, that goes into them and you're building some kind of process into them. It's going to come back and bite you later. It's just that simple. Dads, you want a real joy? Watch those kids that you've got right now when they're in their teenage years and even some of the younger ones. Watch them going up to Lincoln. I'll tell you what, you should be so proud of your kids yesterday, what they did. I mean, they just laid it out. And the kids up in Lincoln and did an incredible job. I mean, it's one of the greatest things that you can have your children to be involved in. These adults here are taking them, molding them. 
they, they took the other two teams that aren't even up there yet. They met Friday night, and they were working on their team. And when those kids went up there yesterday, they laid that thing out. They taught the Word of God. It's the greatest single thing they can in front of all those people. Those people up there working with Caleb and Sarah, they did their thing. They did a masterful job. I mean, I expect the adults to do it. I expect that of them. But for your kids, our kids, at this age of their life, to do as good as they do, with the Word of God and being able to teach people the Bible, it doesn't get any better than that. And why a parent would want to put the emphasis on something else, no matter what it may be. And I know it's all a balance. I get it. You ought to see those kids out on the street. I can always find them because there's 50 of them. And I'm driving, there they are. They're over there at the park and they're passing out hot dogs and passing out tracks. I've seen them at that, that old bus stop down there by the library. I've seen them down there where some of the younger kids that maybe couldn't witness and uh, were too young to do it. I've watched some of the older kids over there and two or three of them standing over here praying for the person. You don't learn that on a soccer field. You don't learn that in a huddle. You don't learn that at a pep rally. You learn that by letting God take your child, build into them the things of the Word of God. And dads, you want a real joy? Watch what they do right now. Watch how they're learning. Watch how they're growing. And then you want a joy that's beyond joy? Wait three or four years, five or six years, and they're standing by your side in the work and the ministry. And they're doing everything that you do. You disciple together. You minister together. You teach together. You work together through a camaraderie in the Bible of putting everything in your life together. You want a real joy that's beyond joy? Wait till they get to that stage in their life where they're right by your side in ministry. You want a real joy that unsurpasses joy? Wait till you're 80, 90 years old. And you can't do the ministry anymore. Wait till you're 70 years old and you can't get around like you used to. Wait till you're 80 years old when you can't get around and can't do the ministry anymore. And then you watch those boys and those girls pick up the mantle where you left off and carry on the ministry that you started in their life. You want a joy beyond joy? There it is. There it is. The hardest thing in the world for a father or a mother, and I've seen it with pastors, I've seen it with Christians, is have to pretend that everything is okay when your kids are nowhere to be found in the middle of the Word of God and God's work, and you have no process to ever get them back. All you have is strife and contention. All you have is one problem after the other. There's no commonality of a bond based on the Word of God. It's just they're doing their thing and you're doing yours. Look at verse 22. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broke spirit drieth the bones. You know, the first thing I want you to see here as we come down through these individual Proverbs, that the Word of God is likened to a medicine. Back in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 22, and again in Jeremiah chapter 4, it talks about the bomb of Gilead. And it's likened to the Word of God. Israel had some severe issues 
and needed to be healed spiritually. And it says back there in Jeremiah that there was a bomb in Gilead. Gilead was, was east of Jordan. And it was a very rich, fertile land that was great for raising cattle and great for everything. Just everything about it was really good. But there was a plant, a bomb, a plant that grew there that was good for physical healing. And it made a salve out of it or a bomb. And when somebody got whatever, they would put it on. It was called the bomb of Gilead. And the Bible likens that bomb of Gilead to the word of God for the nation of Israel. Israel need to be healed. And in the context here of verse 22 it will be used to heal a broken spirit. I want to talk about that for a moment. Of all the aspects of you and me as a human being, you have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. I want to tell you something. The hardest thing to fix when it gets busted is a spirit. Guys, there comes a time in a woman's life when you crush her spirit so bad, it ain't ever going to get back. There comes a time in a guy's life when you get to the point where your spirit gets so broken, it's really tough to get back. The spirit of man or a woman is the hardest thing to fix. You know why? Because it's the most fragile thing that we have. You can go out and you can play football all day long and never break a bone or if you're really in good shape and you can go all day long. Your soul, if you're saved, is sealed on the day of redemption. You're good there. But your spirit is the most fragile aspect of you. Your spirit is your emotions. And your emotions can turn you upside down in just 15 seconds. You can have the greatest day of your life and get one phone call and your day goes south from that point on. That's your spirit. That's your spirit. And in a context, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. In the context, it's talking about how to heal a broken spirit. Psalm 51 verse 17 says, that the real sacrifices are God or a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. And when we start to talk about a man's spirit and man's broken spirit, there's two aspects for a Christ. Not even talking about an unsaved man. Unsaved man has nothing to do with. But for a child of God, for a Christian, his spirit can get broken two ways. And I want to examine it for a moment. First of all, obviously the world. A life of sin, a life of worldly living will drain you completely and leave you empty. Sin will never leave a man or a woman any better than it finds them. It will always take its toll. It will always take its, you always will pay the price. Now understand that the spirit of man will be, will be his desire. It'll be his passion. It'll be his motivation. It'll be his drive. It'll be his, his fortitude. It'll be his emotional makeup. It will, it, it's what will make some guys be able to get to the top of Mount Everest when nobody else can. Because the spirit of man will drive him, his goals, his passion. But that same spirit will take a man and completely destroy him. When he focuses on going to Mount Everest or he focuses on going down in the drug world and all the stuff that is against the things of God, he goes that way. And his spirit gets destroyed. When he gets out of fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit of God within him, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, becomes grieved. That puts tremendous burden on your spirit. There is no joy in your life now. You have to pretend everything. You have to pretend you're spiritual when you're not. You have to pretend you want to be at church when you really don't. You have to pretend that you're right with God around your friends and family when you really are not. 
When your spirit gets grieved, it's grieved because you're not doing right with your spirit. The Holy Spirit goes inside you and he's grieved because of where you're at and where I'm at. And that will cause your human spirit to suffer. And with all the weight of the things of the world that will tear it down, that man will become broken in his spirit. Your spirit and my spirit needs to be cleansed daily, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7.1. It says, having therefore these principles dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And when a person comes to that broken spirit, and that spirit is broken by the world because they've lended their spirit to the world, and the world, for a Christian, will only do one thing. It'll destroy and break your spirit. Then you know what happens? See it all the time. Now you have guilt. Now you have anxiety. That grieving of the Holy Spirit of God it produces these things. If you're a child of God, God separated you from the world. And when you try to go back to the world and take your spirit back there, you're going to have anxiety. You're going to have fear. You're going to have, in time, depression. You're going to have a time in your life where you start to get paranoid about everything around you. You're going to come to the place where you start to get in total denial. And you're going to come to the place where after a period of time, it looks like there's no way out. It always goes to the same place, whether you do or you're not. You get those suicidal thoughts that you think that you're going to end your life. A complete breakdown of the spirit of man. A complete breakdown. He goes from the spirit that can get him to the top of Mount Everest to the spirit that can take him down so far where he has to think the only way out is to take their own life. These things will enter into a man or a woman and break their spirit till they're completely destroyed. You add to that the things that expedite it, booze, drugs. Then you don't sleep. Then you don't eat. And all of those things start to lend to the same area and the same problems. And it all comes down that will destroy your spirit. And the greatest example of this in the Bible, and we use it in people ministry all the time, found in 1 Kings chapter 18 with Elijah when he's up against Ahab and, and Jezebel. It's your first case of bipolar in the Bible. It's your first case of manic depression in the Bible. And he's a saved man in the sense of, of a righteous man. And he, he struggles with all the same thing. You find all the things that you find today in dealing with people. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't eat. He starts to get away from God. He starts to complain. He starts to get nervous. He starts to get paranoia around him. He, start, he goes into depression. And now he's sitting over here and he just wants to die. The greatest prophet that Israel ever had now sitting over here asking God to take his life because he's lost and his spirit is down as slow as it can get. No sleep, no food, no fellowship. All the wrong things have been put into his life that has crushed his spirit. What do you expect? I had a lady one time, she said to me, she says, I said, what's the problem? She says, I don't feel like myself. I said, who do you feel like? She says, I don't know. I just don't feel like myself. I said, well, how do you feel when you feel yourself? She didn't know that either. 
But when you start to get depressed, you lose the all touch of reality. You'll do some of the stupidest, dumbest things you ever saw in your life because your spirit is out of control. Proverbs 25, 28, he that hath no rule of his own spirit like a city broken down without walls. Your spirit is the most dangerous part of your body. It is the most fragile part of your body. And if it isn't bolstered and encased in the principles of the word of God, you're going to have some problems. Elijah did. The second great case in the Bible would be Jonah, who was running from God. Well, you know the story with Elijah. An angel shows up and he, he gets his meds. He gets what he needs. And I've told you this before, the four steps of coming out of depression. The first thing he got ministered to. And when I say that, that sounds like a generic term. You don't get ministered to your way. You get ministered to God's way. Your way isn't going to work. I don't know how many times I've told somebody, this is what you need to do. You do this, you do this, and you do this. And suddenly somewhere in the translation, they decided they didn't want to do that and wanted to go back to doing their own thing. That's what got you into the problems in the first place. Elijah got ministered to. He didn't do it his way. He went God's way. He changed what he had to change. The next thing that he did, he got a fresh vision. He got his perspective back on what God was doing with him. People who get depressed have tunnel vision. All they, they are the most selfish people on the planet. Because all they see is themselves. They don't see what God's doing in their family. They don't see what God's doing over here. They don't see what God is fixing here. All they do is want to sit in a corner and whine about where they're at. He had to get a fresh vision. Then the third thing, he had to get back in the fight. He had to get back into work. He had to go get something done and get involved. I'll tell you what. You got problems today? You got issues today? You think you got big problems? You think you, your, your anxiety and all this and you just struggle with the stupidest stuff you struggle with? I got some great therapy for you. Go down to Children's Mercy Hospital. Walk up and down those halls and go into the rooms with the moms and the dads that are sitting there with their little kid dying of cancer, seven or eight years old, and see if your problem is bad as theirs. Go into burn ward with those little kids, third, fourth degree burns on their bodies. Going to have to go through God knows how many skin transplants. Go see if their problems are as bad as yours. The problem with people that get in depression and get all broken spirit is because their life has all become around them. You are the focus and the center of your world and you see nothing around you. You don't see what God's doing. You don't see the consequences of what's going to happen if you don't pull it out. You don't see anybody else's suffering. All you see is yours. And the fourth thing, start cataloging those principles 24-7. I mean, you get those things on those three-by-five cards if that's what you've got to do, and you live there. And you stay with it. You follow those four things, brother, Elijah did, and he got out of it. Today, I think the number one issue that people are diagnosed with is, they used to call it manic depression, now it's called bipolarism. I don't know if you know it or not, but in America today, 70% of the adults are on some kind of antidepressants. 
And of course, it's called bipolar because you have mood swings, north and south, north pole, south pole. You're good in the morning, and then you're crying by 6 o'clock at night. Or you're crying at 6 o'clock at night, and you're good in the evening. Your mood swings back and forth. All that is nothing more than your spirit being out of control. And I'm telling you, in 40 years of ministry, dealing with thousands of people and situations, I've never met a Christian who was diagnosed with bipolar or had those kind of depressional things who ever really knew his Bible. They may know things about the Bible. They may go to church. I'm not talking about that. I've often wondered what antidepressants Paul and Silas and Barnabas were on. I often wondered what the Albigensians and the Waldensians were on when they went through their great persecution. I've often wondered what got through uh, Daniel and the lion's den. I've often wondered when you go back to the Old Testament, all the things that they went through. I've never saw a Walgreens or a pharmacy anywhere in the Old Testament. How come they could get through what they went through and you and I have the littlest things in our life and it just, the answer is your spirit. You're not taking care of your spirit. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't get your meds from God's word, then you'll get them from Walgreens. If that book is not going to fix what's wrong with you, then you'll have to go to the world to get it fixed. But I'm going to make it a statement along with that that I want you to listen very carefully. Listen very carefully. Without getting into it, there are some of God's people that need to go to Walgreens. Because it comes a place in your life when you put yourself so far out of it that you just simply say, you know, I, I've used the illustration before. You take a little piece of thread. Bible says a threefold cord is not easily broken. You take a little piece of thread, you know, like your mama sews uh, with, and you take that thread and you wrap it around your finger one time, and you just snap it. Maybe two times, just snap it. You take that same piece of thread and wrap it around your finger a hundred times, you will die trying to break it. And every time in your life when you do something against the spirit, man's spirit, and you put a piece of the world into it, and you wrap the world around it, and you don't do what the Word of God says, and you don't get to the point in your life where you're going to trust God, really trust God, really get in that book, after a period of time, when you add the booze to it, you add the drugs to it, you add all the other stuff to it, and now your life is all about you, one day you're going to say to yourself, I'm not going to take these drugs anymore. And your flesh is going to say, oh yes you are. I'm telling you, you play with your spirit, you mess with your spirit, that spirit of man is the most fragile thing that you have. And when you break it and you crush it and it gets busted, you don't just put a Band-Aid on it and fix it. I've seen moms and dads turn their kids into absolute drug addictions. I've seen those kids, when they go to the doctor because they don't know what they're doing and their parents are nothing to do with the Bible, I've seen them put those kids on antidepressants when they're five, six, seven years old. And they grow up 20, 30, all life on those drugs. And now you think you're just going to walk away from them. There is a way to get out of it and get there. 
But it's not by you running your own spirit the way you want to run it. I've seen people play it out so long uh, without getting any kind of help. I've seen them when they get help, they just like tiptoe through it. They take what they want and do what they want to do. Your spirit, your emotions are the strongest force in your life. If you don't learn to control your spirit, your spirit will control you. The spirit of man is absolutely nothing to mess with. It's the hardest thing you've got about you to fix. And bipolarism in a child of God is simply nothing more than that person not taking the word of God's principles serious, letting themselves get so far out of touch and getting themselves into so many different areas that now their emotions are out of control. It's like an alcohol, an alcoholic who's been drinking for 40 years, whose life and his soul and is saturated with alcohol. His flesh is saturated with it. And he said, one morning I get up, I'm going to quit drinking. You're going to quit drinking until that flesh jerks your chain. Well, I'm not going to do drugs anymore. Right up to the point where your flesh jerks that chain. And you'll be right back on the street looking for the dealer. You'll be right back down trying to buy some more booze. That's what you do because you have ingrained it in your flesh and it's now affecting your spirit. Whatever you take into your body, your eyes, your ears, your nose, what you drink drink and digest affects your spirit. Now, the second broken spirit in the Bible, and this is a good one. First one's bad, real bad. Now, the second broken spirit in the Bible will be us coming to the end of self and yielding everything to God. This will be Psalm 51, 17. And you need to understand this. Here's the key. Here's the problem we got. If you're saved here this morning... You are bipolar. If you're saved here this morning, you're a schizo. Romans chapter 7 says you have an old nature and you have a new nature. You're going to see your friendly corner psychiatrist and he says, well, you're bipolar. You have mood swings. You have good days, bad days. You have, uh, you have good thoughts. You have bad thoughts. If you're a Christian here this morning... You're going to have good thoughts and bad thoughts. You've got an old sin nature that wants to take you down the bad road, and you've got a new nature that wants to take you on the high road. Right. Something has to determine which way you go. It's your spirit. Where you lend your spirit to. If you lend your spirit to the things of the world, it's going to go that way. If you lend it to the things of God, it's going to go that way. And when I say lend it, I mean get into it. Do what it says. Follow it. You have an old nature and you have a new nature and they do war together. If you ever saw the movie, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that's you and me. Dr. Jekyll was a gentleman of the day, very high in society, very well esteemed, a great man. But at night he took into Mr. Hyde. It was despicable in what he did. That's why a child of God can be the greatest thing that a God ever wanted him or her to be, or he can be the worst thing God ever wanted him to be. And it comes down to your spirit. 
Where you're going to lend it? Are you going to cleanse it? Are you going to seal it with the principles of God's word? Now, here's the difference. You want to get this. You want to get this down, man. Where the first guy takes the lifestyle of the world and gets his spirit broken and his life destroyed. I'm going to say it again. Where the first guy takes the low road and the lifestyle and the things of the world and gets his spirit broken and his life destroyed. A Christian who is in God's word, the second guy, can have his world fall apart around him. But never his spirit. His whole world can be corrupted around him. But your spirit will never get broken by the world because your spirit was broken by God. Yes. And when your spirit is broken by God, your body can go through it. You can go through all kinds of things in your life. But it'll never break your spirit because it's already been broken. You've got to see that. Where I may weep, where I may have sorrow, where I may have pain, where I may suffer on the outward man. The inner man who is in the book will in all things rejoice. Philippians 4, 4 says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. When you get a headache, you take a Tylenol. When you get a stomach ache, you take a Tums. And when you get down in life and through sometimes our own disobedience or just because of things of the world and it tries to break your spirit, you take the book. God wrote you a book of prescriptions written by the great physician who was dealt out on Sunday morning by a pharmacist in a pharmacy. All I have for you is prescriptions. The prescriptions for you may not be the same for you. It may not be the same for you as for you. Everybody has different problems and things you go through. But when you get into the Bible, the great physician details out exactly what you need for your spirit. And that's why when the world dumps on you, your spirit never gets broken. Because that's already broken to the things of the Word of God. I'm so focused on that. We should be so focused on that in everything that we do and say. You ought to be so focused on what God has given you and what God is doing with you and you ought to be so into Him and the Word of God and your spirit ought to be so in touch with His. You ought to, you ought to be walking into work and somebody will say, Hey, Jim, what's up? Heaven. Heaven's up. Heaven's great. Walking into work. Hey, Mary, how are you? What, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing just good. Hey, Mary, uh, what's new? Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 21. It's really good. Great. You ought to be so into it that it permeates everything that you think and you do. You ought to walk into work and the guy says, hey, pal, how's the world treating you? Terrible. But God is so good to me. It's your spirit. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Heaviness in heart of a man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. Proverbs 15, 13, A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. The spirit of man will direct him throughout his life one way or the other. It will direct him to the world. 
and break his and destroy him by crushing his spirit or it will lead him to the word of God that will preserve his spirit by the unity of that book with God's spirit and keep it where it needs to be no matter what happened to the flesh. Matthew chapter 12, verse 20 says, a bruised reed shall not be broken. Sometimes this old world will bruise us, but it'll never break us. Ability to accept life's bad deals and see them with wisdom and understanding. Some of God's people have been through some of the most terrible times in their life, and yet their spirit was never broken. I've often thought, as I said earlier, what meds Paul, Silas, and Barnabas must have been on when Paul called all that he went through. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watching and fastings. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21, he says, beaten with rods five times, 195 stripes. He talked about being shipwrecked, being destitute, being stranded. And when he got down to that thing, he says, and all these things were light afflictions. Light afflictions. Are you kidding me? And not one time in all those things did it ever break his spirit. Not one time. Down through history, the Waldensians, and even through some of the greatest persecutions that the world has ever seen, not one time was their spirit broken. And here's perspective for you. 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worked for us a far more exceptional, eternal weight of glory. You see, when we look at what we go through, we see it from our own standpoint. We see what we're going through because we're so selfish and we focus on ourselves. That verse says that when you go through something, whatever you're going through, if you have perspective, it's light affliction compared to what he went through. Yes. And it's only a moment of time. That's the greatest thing about whatever I'm going through. I've been through some hard times in my life. You know what got me through? You know what got me through when nothing else would suffice me? You know what got me through? I knew that one day there was going to be an end to it. An unsaved man can't say that. An unsaved man can go through all his life, all her life, and pain everything out when they die to go to hell. And it just starts. But no matter what I was ever going through in my time, when it was so bad and I couldn't hardly bear it sometimes in my life, I would look at that thing and I'd say, you know what? This too shall pass. And there's going to be an end to it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but there's going to be an end to it. So when I compared whatever I was going through with what God was, when son on that cross went through, it was light affliction. Light affliction. That's perspective. Our affliction is only for a moment when you put it up against God's suffering and affliction. And that mindset will never hurt your spirit. It'll never crush your spirit or destroy your spirit. It only makes your spirit stronger. God's Spirit and your Spirit becoming one through the Word of God. Listen very carefully, and I'm done. Joy in our spirit. Joy in our spirit that translates into joy in our life will always be the byproduct of our obedience to God. It's just that simple. There will never be joy in a Christian's life outside the obedience to God and His Word. And nothing but sin can ever take that joy away. Nothing. Proverbs 20, verse 29 tells us that the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23 says the spirit of man uh, is his mind, and we're to renew that spirit of our mind. And for you and me, the real key to the Christian life and keeping your spirit where it needs to be is simply one word, renew. 
renew it every day. In some cases, renew it twice a day. In some cases, redo it four times a day. And in some cases, redo it every hour. In some cases, do it every 30 seconds if you need to. But the key for you and me to keep that joy in the spirit and not let it get crushed is to get in that book, get in the principles, and on a daily basis, an hourly basis, whatever it takes, renew it. Renew it with his spirit. That's the key. Taking my spirit, my mind, and becoming one with God's spirit, his mind. Renewing it every day by the principles of the word of God.